Well, this morning uh, marks the beginning of a new sermon series. Uh, If you're new here with us, we tend to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, We were in Luke for uh, basically through the summer. Uh, Today, we are starting a new series in the book of Hosea. Uh, If you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, we have a a helpful tool. Here it is. Uh, The Bible Project has put out these great uh, sheets that diagram books of the Bible. Uh, Hosea isn't a super familiar book, so uh, we would encourage you to pick one up. And uh, just to incentivize this, we are going to do a coloring contest. We've done this before. So uh, you can pick up one of these sheets. Uh, We'll have two categories, uh, young and old. You figure out which one you fall into. And uh, there will be big prizes. Uh, I don't know if there'll be cash prizes. There'll be probably extra candy that we have lying around. Uh, But this is really helpful. Uh, And actually, you can go online, thebibleproject.com. They kind of animate it. And it's great, especially when it's a book, again, that's not super familiar, just to get a sense of where we're going, uh, who the characters are. And that's what we're going to do a bit today. But uh, you can pick that up on your way out. I think it will be helpful. Uh, The book of Hosea is in the Old Testament. It's right after the book of Daniel. You'll notice that our series uh, title, maybe go back, Jaden, to our, there it is. You can see our, the title is Faithful. Okay, Faithful. And it may look like from that picture that this is going to be a marriage series. It, it's not. It's not going to be the hows and whys of a, of a godly marriage. Uh, what we're going to do is, um, is to use marriage as kind of a, a central metaphor, a central idea to understand the relationship between God and his people. Uh, between us and God. If you're here this morning, a Christian, that's that relationship that this book is really about. Uh, We're going to look at our nature as human beings, the character of God, how we relate to each other. And the reason we're using marriage as a central idea is because that's, that's exactly what you find in the book of Hosea. In fact, you find it actually throughout the Bible. If you look, there's a lot of language in the Bible, uh, relational, sort of intimate language about the nature of our, of our connection with God. If you look uh, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5, talks about a husband's love for his wife as being like the love of Christ for the church. Uh, there's a whole book in the Old Testament, Song of Solomon, which is about King Solomon and his love for his bride-to-be, but is also an analogy for God's love for his people. And so just like in marriage, right, in our relationship with God, there's, there's great joy, in the relationship itself, in the intimacy of it. But uh, just like in marriage, there can be heartache and there can be betrayal. And that's the situation in the time of of Hosea. So while the events of this book happened thousands of years ago, uh, what we're going to see is that people, human beings, really haven't changed that much and God hasn't changed at all. Uh, We, as human beings, we struggle in our devotion to God, in our relationship with God, but he remains faithful year after year, moment by moment, in every generation. So we're going to begin uh, just with a little bit of context, uh, and the book itself begins that way. So this Hosea lived around 750 BC, so 750 years before Christ. We don't know that much about him, but in our very first verse, he gives us a little bit of context. So here's Hosea 1.1. We're going to do five verses this morning. Uh, We're ease into it, but here's the first verse where it reads this way. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So the first thing to notice there is that there are two sets of kings. You see that? That's because at this point in history, uh, the kingdom of God's people is divided. So I have a map for you. Very exciting. Uh, The kingdom was united, right, under the first few kings, Saul, King David, Solomon, Then basically Solomon and his kids messed things up and there was a division 
And so now the kind of purpley blue at the top is the, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. And uh, Hosea lived in the northern kingdom. And he was primarily speaking to the northern kingdom. But you'll notice he included both sets of kings. And that's, that's because this message is actually for both kingdoms. Because both kingdoms basically have the same problem. And it's a relationship problem between them and their God. And the problem itself becomes clear when we look at the uh, surprising assignment that God gives Hosea. Now, prophets of God usually are there to communicate messages from God to the people. And, and they usually speak these messages. Usually they begin by saying, you know, thus saith the Lord, right? Here's what God is saying to you. It comes with the authority of God. But this time, God doesn't just give Hosea something to say. He gives him something to do. And it's something very unexpected, very surprising. Uh, so I'm going to read it. Next two verses, we see what this assignment is. Verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So, God's instructions are that Hosea was to marry a woman that would be repeatedly unfaithful to him. Uh, a wife of whoredom is what it says, which if you're new to the church or if the first time you're reading through the book of Hosea, it sounds very strange. It, sh it sounds very shocking, and it is very shocking. But what we should notice here is that there is a clear purpose to this. That it is shocking, it is unexpected that God would command this, that Hosea would go and do this, but we can see that it is purposeful. He says to Hosea, you need to marry a wife of whoredom because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking me. Now this is interesting. Okay, this immediately gets us into the heart of this book because clearly here what's being uh, spoken about is the sin of the people, right? The people of, of God, their sinful behavior. But the word choicing is very interesting. Uh, God's people sin a lot in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of different words that are used. But usually the words tend to be words uh, like disobedience, like transgression, like iniquity. Usually the whole point of if you're sinning against God, you've broken the commands of God. You're, you're in the wrong spiritually, morally, legally. But this word, right, this word whoredom tells us something else about sin. It tells us that sin isn't just disobeying God, it's, it's being unfaithful to him. It's, it's breaking our relationship with him. So we're going to have three points this morning, and here is the first one. That sin is unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. This, this is key uh, to understanding our relationship with God uh, more clearly, because what it tells us right away is that God isn't just some impersonal deity in the sky He's not far removed from us, just proclaiming blessings and curses, just giving commandments, do this, and, and stays far away from us. No, what it's telling us is that he was and is a personal being, that he actually is in a committed relationship with his people. This is something that is actually pretty clear when you kind of read through the Bible, but I don't know that we always uh, think of it this way, that we have this kind of relationship with God. So we're going we're gonna to try to understand this. We're going to try to understand what's, what's happened in that relationship, relationship up to the point of Hosea, where, where God is telling Hosea to do this thing. And so we're going to look at uh, a bit of backstory. Now, backstory is, 
is always important. If you're understanding character, if you want to understand conflict, it really helps to sort of deepen understanding of why, why a character is feeling this way, like in a story. So for example, uh, I finally watched um, this movie, right, Thor. Uh, it's been out for a little while, but it's finally free on Disney+, Plus. so I watched it. And, um, and they begin the movie with, with backstory, with a recap of all the things that have happened to Thor. Now, as you see him there, he looks like a very strong, very resolute, right, supernatural being. That's clearly what the movie poster is meant to communicate. But in the, in the backstory, we come to see him in a different light, right? They go through all of the things that have happened to Thor. And it's been a tragic, I mean, the movies thus far have been tragic for, for Thor, frankly. He's lost his father. He's lost his mother. He's lost his brother, Loki, uh, two or three times, just because uh, he's kind of a god sort of thing. Uh, he's lost his friends. He's lost the love of his life, Jane, who is now there. It's complicated. But anyway, he's, what we learn is that you know, Thor isn't just this mythic godlike being with supernatural powers. He is, he is a man putting on a brave front for the hurt and the heartache that is within him, right? For all his strength, for all his charisma, Thor is longing for love. The backstory is important. And, and, and that story is not that much different than the story of God and his people. It's actually way different. It's very, very different. <laughs> but the part that is the same is that uh, our story also is a story of love and heartache because it is the story of a broken relationship. So just here's a couple of snapshots just to kind of get in our mind leading up to Hosea. Uh, at the very beginning, God created human beings, created a people and a perfect place, but he created these people, Adam and Eve, to be in relationship with him. They were a people for himself, in a, in a sense. They were to know him, to enjoy him, to love and be loved. That's what you see in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the evening. They're in connection with him. They experience the fullness of his presence and his blessing, like newlyweds, in a sense. They enjoyed each other perfectly and purely and joyfully, but... As we know, it didn't last. Okay, Adam and Eve sinned, and their sin wasn't just a disobedience to God's commands. It was a betrayal of that relationship. Okay, it, it was a rejection of God's love. They were unfaithful, but God was faithful. God was merciful. God was, was gracious. He kept loving them. He didn't punish them right away. He sent them out into the world, and thus began a very uneven rhythm of relationship where, where we were unfaithful over and over again and God remained faithful. Mount Sinai is another good example. Okay, Mount Sinai uh, with Moses. Uh, this is right after God had saved his people from slavery and Exodus brought them miraculously, supernaturally across the Red Sea. Now they're at the foot of this mountain. God is giving uh, Moses the Ten Commandments and saying, look, this is this is a recipe for a, a fruitful life, a peaceful life, a prosperous life. Live this way. And so Moses brings the word of God to the people. Look at here at Exodus 24, 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, it's a, they're making a vow. It's, it's like a marriage ceremony. There, there's even a whole ceremony. They, they slaughtered an oxen. They did a burnt offering to God. They sprinkled people with blood, which we don't do in wedding ceremonies. But at that time, it was very significant. It was a very beautiful moment where the people were saying, yes, you are God. We're committed to you. We're going to do this. But of course, they didn't do this. Within a few chapters, they were already worshiping a golden calf, right? a hunk of metal instead of the living God. And after that, it was rejection. 
after rejection. They, they neglected his laws. They worshiped other false gods. They demanded a human king to rule over them instead of God himself. And those kings, most of the time, made things worse and worse. They made agreements with other foreign nations to try to have some sense of security instead of looking to God. When things got really bad, they would turn back to God. They would, they would look to him for help and mercy. They would cry out, please help us. And every time God would respond in love, in, in faithfulness, only to be rejected again and again. You can see how God feels about this rhythm in the book of Jeremiah. Again, another prophet speaking sort of about the same issues, but here God is speaking directly to his people. Listen to the language he uses and the emotion behind these words. He says this to his people, uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Clearly, clearly God is upset. And I think the language there is very interesting. He's not just listing like a list of infractions and wrongs. As I read that, it, it kind of sounds like a letter, you know, after, after there's been a breakup, right? And God's saying, don't you remember what it was like in the beginning? Don't you remember how you loved me? What did I do, what did I do wrong, right? All I did was love you and care for you and, and rescue you, but you forgot about me. You rejected me. I brought you into a land of promise that would be for you and all your children, and you defiled that land, which is exactly what we see in the book of Hosea, right? You have that same language, a land of whoredom, which means the entire culture, the entire culture of Israel at that time was unfaithful, was untrue, had no integrity. From the individual person at the bottom to the political, religious leaders at the top, everyone had proved themselves to be sinful and corrupt and betrayed their commitment to God. So that's the backstory. That, that's that's how we should understand this brokenness between God and his people up to the time of Hosea. So let me ask this question then, if we're to understand this, which we should want to, because you should already be seeing this hasn't changed a lot today. Here's the question. Why did this keep happening? Like how, how could these people who had witnessed these incredible things that God did, the amazing demonstrations of power and grace, and yet they... They kept turning their backs on God. How, how did that happen? Well, I came across a helpful quote uh, from a guy named Tim Chester, who's written a commentary on Hosea. He, uh, I think, articulates it in a very succinct way. He basically says this. Here's what happened. A time of prosperity had led to spiritual complacency. And a time of spiritual complacency had led to spiritual infidelity. It was a time that was coming to a close. And this, this is accurate. Uh, you notice uh, the reference to King Jeroboam in the beginning of Hosea. King Jeroboam II was an evil king. All the kings uh, in the northern kingdom were evil. But he had managed to kind of cobble together a sense of peace for, for the northern kingdom for about 40 years. And, and when there's a sense of peace, meaning they you know, paid off the people around them, and so they were trading with them, people were getting wealthier. There's a, there's a time of prosperity. 
And so you'd think that if things were going well, that the people of God would, would worship God, right? Praise God, things are going well. There would be, they would draw nearer to the Lord, but that's not what happened. Because once they had what they needed, they, they neglected their relationship with the Lord, right? Once, once the enemy nations weren't attacking, once the crops were growing, once trade was increasing, they weren't on their knees every day. They weren't, they weren't sacrificing, they weren't seeking to draw near to him. They slept in late. They stayed up late. Their hearts became wrapped up in other things and eventually other gods. It's, it's the same thing that can happen in a marriage relationship. When you take for granted that things are okay, you begin to neglect each other. You begin to have different rhythms of life, not really taking the time to connect, to know each other, to communicate, and all of a sudden, other, other things begin to take up more of your time. Before you know it, you're very, you're very far away from each other. And This is the breeding ground for unfaithfulness. This is what happened with God's people. It's happening still with us and God to this day. When things are difficult in our lives, what do we do? We, 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 we get on our knees, right? If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you, you go to God and you ask for help, especially when it's things out of our control, which it usually is. If we're praying, it's because we can't do anything about it. We're not sure what to do. So we're praying and asking God. We're drawing near to him, reading our, our Bible a lot. But then when things get good, we, we tend to take it for granted, kind of the, the intensity eases off. We're, we're not up as early praying. We're not, we're not reading our Bible as much. And then other interests begin to fill up our time. Our devotion to God becomes very minimal and hollow, and we don't even really notice it until, until a crisis comes, and then we scramble around looking for what to do again and again. Unfaithfulness seems to be there just waiting to kind of reveal itself. But here's the other complicating factor, I think, about this whole dynamic. During the process of growing unfaithfulness, like on our part, there seems to be a period of time where it looks like God is, is like a total pushover. Like he just doesn't care or, he, or he's weak. I mean, it looks like, if you read that, that passage of Jeremiah, it kind of looks like God is a bit of a chump, right? Brokenhearted, waiting by the phone. He's been broken up with. He's like, man, I hope they call I just, I really want, he's not doing anything else with his, with his life. So listen, this is what the book of Hosea is about, okay? And what the very clear message is that God is brokenhearted, but he's, he's not brokenhearted for himself. He's brokenhearted for us, okay? He, he doesn't need us to be happy and content. He, he's perfectly content within himself, the the community of the, of the Trinity. He doesn't, he doesn't need us. He's never needed us, but we do. We need him. He can see it, but we can't. That, that's why he's brokenhearted. That's why all of this energy and effort, because he sees the thing that we can't see. So he's, he's not weak in his strength and in his love. His message to us is the same message that anyone who's in a relationship where someone else is being unfaithful, eventually the message is, is listen, this can't continue. You can't keep going on this way. If you're going to continue to be unfaithful, there are going to be consequences. And that's what the book of Hosea is about. In fact, this is our second point. Firstly, sin is unfaithfulness. Secondly, unfaithfulness, it has consequences. So to get back to Hosea, he's a real guy receiving this message from God. He, he goes and does what God tells him to do. He marries a woman named Gomer, probably a local prostitute. And she conceives and has a son, but there are some other instructions. So here's the last 
two verses for today. Verse four, and the Lord said to him, call his name, so call your son's name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here what we see is that uh, this is not going to be just about Hosea's marriage. Okay, that, that's symbolic. But also, Hosea's children will bring about, uh, have a, a message for the people of God. So the question is, what is the message? Well, the message is in the name. Uh, for the people back then, they would have heard the name Jezreel, and right away they would have got the message. Because they understand what that means and, and where that is. For us, we're like, Jezreel, it sounds like a weird name, but I don't know what it means. So let's, let's understand what it means. Jezreel was a place in northern uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. There it is. Okay, it was a valley. Um, originally, it was the valley where God gave victory to Gideon. So originally, it was like a good place. But from that time onward, it had very negative uh, connotations. Okay, um, there was violence, bloodshed, and judgment all associated with this valley. So here's a couple of things that happened in this valley that everyone knew about. Now, there's a story of a man named Naboth who had a vineyard right next to King Ahab's palace. Remember the story? And King Ahab, he wanted that vineyard. And so he goes to Naboth and says, sell me your vineyard. And Naboth says, I, I'm sorry, king, I'd like to, but it's part of our family land. I can't, I can't sell it to you. Naboth, temper tantrum, right? he's whining, I want that vineyard. He's in his palace. Um, king Ahab is married to Jezebel, who's even worse than King Ahab, okay? Both of them evil. It's like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Um, so he says, Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. I'm so upset. And she says, what's wrong with you? You're a king. You can do whatever you want. Just kill him and take the land. And so that's what they do. They send some guys over. They bring Naboth out. They stone him to death in his backyard. Blood all over the place. Everyone knows this story. That's what people think of when they think of Jezreel. But there's more. A bunch of years later, uh, God anoints a new king. Hey, King Ahab is dead. Uh, his son's sort of in charge. But God says, no, Jehu, you are going to be my king. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to avenge this. I want you to go and basically take out the house of Ahab. And so that's what Jehu does. He goes again to the valley of Jezreel. He finds uh, King Ahab's son and he pierces him with an arrow right through his heart, falls on the ground, blood everywhere. Then he goes, finds Jezebel. Jezebel's up in the palace, tells the guards to throw her down. She lands on the ground, horses trample over her. It's gruesome, it's bloody, and it's a picture of judgment. All of this is what the people that Hosea is talking to, that's what they think of right away. Jezreel? You're going to call little baby boy Jezreel? That's like in our context, that would be like calling a little baby like Chernobyl or like, or like Auschwitz or like Dachau or like September 11th. Just calling that. People would be like, what, what are you doing? How can you call a little kid that name? It's, it's, it's shocking. It's, it's a horrific image and that is the whole point. That's what God wants his people to understand. He wanted them to see the devastating and horrific nature of sin because they were taking it lightly. And he wanted them to understand that there is judgment coming for sin. That's why he makes reference to uh, a couple of, of ju judgments. One against the house of Jehu. You can see it in the text there. First, he will punish the house of Jehu. Then the house of Israel. Now, uh, the house of Jehu is kind of confusing. If, if you kind of listen to the little bit of the story there, Jehu was the good king that went and sort of took out Ahab's son and Jezebel. Why, why does God want to punish him? Well, the problem with Jehu is that he started out good, but he ended up uh, evil. 
Uh, he was there to, to kind of clean house, and he did, right? He, he took vengeance out on the Ahab's house. He even got rid of some of the idols of Baal, which he was supposed to, but he didn't turn all the way back to God. So here's what it says about Jehu in 2 Kings 10. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all his heart, so he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So he didn't actually lead the people of God back to a restored uh, relationship with God. His changes that he made were superficial changes and eventually slipped back into unfaithfulness, which is an unfaithfulness that continued to the time of Hosea. So what God is saying at this moment to his people is, listen, I'm, listen, I'm not going to let this go on forever. Okay, I will punish the house of Jehu. I will punish the entire kingdom of Israel. I will break the bow of Israel, which symbolizes complete military defeat. And that's exactly what was coming for both kingdoms, actually. Right at this moment, the empire of Assyria was kind of growing in strength. And in 30 years' time, they would come and they would basically conquer the northern kingdom. That was 722 BC. That's what's going to happen. And then a few hundred years later, 586 BC, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to conquer the southern kingdom. So God's saying, judgment, bloodshed, once again is coming in the valley of Jezreel and it's according to my plan to punish sin. This is what you're going to find in the book of Hosea. Actually, most of the Old Testament prophets. That there's a lot of references to the judgment of God. And so I think the question that's, that's good for us to ask at this point is, what impression do we have of this kind of thing? Like, does it seem harsh to you? This, this imagery of bloodshed, of punishment that is coming for, for the people of God because of their sin. Does this anger of God seem justified? I think the answer to that question all depends on how you see sin, what your idea of sin actually is. And the challenge for us in our day is that it's very, very difficult for us to see sin clearly, like to actually understand the nature of our own unfaithfulness because we kind of we swim in an ocean of sin in our culture, right? I mean, it's just everywhere we look, everyone we know, we ourselves are kind of steeped in things that are disobedient to God, go completely against what God said is best, tear at the, the fabric of the relationship that we might profess we have with Jesus. Now, I don't mean by that, that that each one of us, each human being is as overtly wicked as like King Ahab or Jezebel. I mean more that I think we're more like Jehu, that our intentions are good, but our follow-through is, is often very poor that we say we want to get rid of sin and idolatry in our lives. If, if we've come to faith, we say, look, no, I, I want to follow the Lord. I want to walk faithfully. And we make a few changes, but we always tend to leave the back door open of our heart. And sin creeps in again and again. And we end up far away from him again and again. That's how it was in the time of Hosea. That's how it is for us today. And so God's point to the people back then is the same point for us today, which is, look, you need to wake up. You, you need to realize what's going on. He's saying, I've put up with sin for a long time because I love you, but don't assume that just because I've put up with it for a while that there won't be any consequences. He's saying, I, I'm a holy God. I'm a perfect judge. You can fool yourself into thinking that everything is fine, but it's not fine. 
In fact, if you were to look closely, even right now, you would see there's collateral damage because of the sin in your life, for the people in your life, and your relationship with me. But in the end, there is always going to be judgment for sin and unfaithfulness. It came for Israel. It came for Judah. It's, it's going to come for us. This is the righteous anger of God. And we're going to see a lot of it in the book of Hosea. Time and again, he's going to expose our wayward, sinful hearts and warn us about the judgment that is coming. But he's doing it out of love. He's doing it because he wants us to have a chance to avoid it. And even though in these first five verses, we don't, we don't really see anything explicit about second chances or forgiveness or anything like that, there is a golden thread of grace that shines very brightly here at the start of the book. Okay, and I'll say it in our, here's our third point. Uh, I'm gonna give you the point short, but I actually want it to be long. So the short point is this, God gets our attention but what I really want the point to be is God goes to great lengths to get our attention because he loves us. But I couldn't put all that on the slide. So if you want to take notes, okay, God goes to great lengths to get our attention because he loves us. So think for a moment, just put yourself in the position of like Hosea in that time, that ancient world, and what, what he was called to do, what he actually did. We don't know much about Gomer. Like I said, probably she was a local prostitute because the culture at the time was highly sexualized. Uh, the worship of the, of the Baals involved sexual activity in the, in the temples. They had cult prostitutes where you would go and you would engage in sexual activity and then at the time pray that, that these gods would somehow bring fertility to your, to your crops. It was a horrible, horrific thing that drew people away from God. And so uh, Hosea was now going to marry one of, those, one of those women. You can imagine what people would be talking about. Uh, Jewish weddings were very public things. People would have been invited to this, to this wedding. You can imagine the talk in the marketplace. Did you hear about Hosea? What? No, I didn't hear. What? He's, you know, he's marrying? He's marrying one of the women? Gomer, who? What, what is going on? People would have been asking each other and asking him, Look, what is going on? What, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And that, of course, was the whole point. God wanted to get people's attention. He wanted people to wonder what was going on and ask questions because he wanted them to realize that this shameful marriage was a mirror of their own shameful spiritual lives. He, he was trying to shake them out of their complacency with regards to sin by doing something totally shocking. And just in case you're not clear, God does this fairly often in the Old Testament in particular. He calls his prophets to do things in the lead up to the conquest of the kingdoms he called them to do some pretty shocking things to try to get people's attention. For example, in Isaiah uh, 20, he called Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, to walk around naked for three years as he preached. And he did that because it would, people would ask questions, right? Isaiah, what's going on? Did you lose your toga? Why? And the answer would be, I am, I am walking as a prisoner of war because, listen, in a few years, you're going to be a prisoner of war. The Assyrians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. They're going to lead you naked away from your hometown because of your sin. You need to wake up. It was meant to shock the people. Ezekiel was instructed to lie down on his side for over a year and then switch to the other side. It was like 100 days, 200 days. And the whole purpose was, look, there's a siege coming where you're going to have to, you have to wait. You're going to be besieged by Babylon. See, these prophetic things, they, they're extreme, but they're not crazy. Okay, in fact, in fact, sometimes this is the only sane thing that you can do when someone you love is in trouble and they, don't, they can't see it. They can't see what's going on. You need to do something to get their attention. 
So a story uh, that I heard from uh, Pastor Tim Keller. He's a pastor of a church in uh, New York called Redeemer. He and his wife, Kathy, they planted the church. And the story he tells is that uh, as they felt the call to plant this church, this is in 1989, uh, he had the sense that this this was going to be difficult. And so we had a conversation with his wife and said, listen, if we're going to do this, uh, I think... I just think I'm going to need to work extra hard for the first little while, like work late, work weekends, just to kind of get some traction, get this going. I know that's going to mess with our work-life rhythm. I know it's going to impact our marriage, but if if I can do that for three years, I I think we can get things going, then I'll back off. Kathy's wife said, yeah, I, I totally agree. She also felt the call was willing to sacrifice. And so that's what happened. And they start planted the church and things went as planned. He worked extra hard and just, you know, things went well. The, the church began to grow, but three years of that kind of a work-life rhythm turned into four years, turned into five years. And Kathy tried to talk to him about this, tried to say, hey, remember what we talked about, that you would slow down, that you would take more time, and, and he wouldn't listen. He, he just didn't see it that way. He wasn't listening to what she was saying. So one day, as he tells, he comes into their apartment late again, and he hears things smashing. And he goes, he goes out to the, to the patio and, and Kathy's there with a hammer and she's smashing their wedding china. Smash, smash, throwing plates on the floor. And he comes and he's, he's thinking, well, Kathy, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she says, you're wrong. It's wrong. You're, remember what we said? You said you would slow down. You're not slowing down. You're not listening to me. You're, you're not seeing. He said, he said, I'm listening. I'm listening. <laughs> and he said, in that moment, he, re- he realized, he saw what he couldn't see before. He had been deaf to what she was trying to say, he realized his sin and things changed. Now, the application from this ladies isn't necessarily <laughs> to go home and start smashing things, but, but there are times when you love someone and, and you can see something, you know they're headed for destruction, it's unhealthy, it's not good, they can't see, you need to get their attention. That is what God does in our lives. That is what he's doing in the time of Hosea, this shocking thing so that people will hopefully take note of it and then look at themselves and see what is God saying. God does this to us frequently, but we don't often see it for what it is. The things he does are often to throw monkey wrenches into our, our lives that we think is going great. There's lots of times in our lives when, when we think on so many levels, everything's going great, job's going well, Money's okay. Family seems to be doing okay. But our soul is in danger and we can't see it. That there's sin maybe beginning to take root or has taken root and we've just turned a blind eye to that area of our life and we want to deal with it. And so in God's love and grace, he, he does something, allows something in our lives that just stops us in our tracks. Something that we think is his lack of love. Like maybe illness or, or financial difficulty or job loss, or some, some other challenge. I've been meeting with a guy recently who all of a sudden developed insomnia. He just wasn't sleeping. A couple times this year, he's, just, he's come in and it's, I mean, not sleeping night after night, and it's just brought everything to a standstill. And as, as we've been working through and praying through it, his, his realization is, I think God is really trying to get my attention. He said, I, I've realized that I've drifted. I haven't, I haven't been praying. I haven't read my Bible. I've been far from God, and, and this has drawn him back to the Lord. It's God's grace on his life, even though in the midst of it, it's difficult and hard, and those kinds of things always are. But it's not a lack of God's love when these things happen in our lives. We should have a part of our heart and our mind thinking, our antenna that goes up when something difficult happens. I wonder if God's trying to get my attention. 
because that's what he does. Especially when we're in a situation where we can't see how bad it actually is. He wants to disrupt our lives so that we might be wakened from our spiritual stupor. So we can devote ourselves to him once again in faithfulness. And we should know this is what distinguishes God from all the other would-be saviors in our lives. When we're barreling for destruction, all the things of this world that we look to for hope and security and enjoyment and love, what do they do? Nothing. They sit idly by while we barrel off the edge of a cliff. Only God intervenes. Only God has the power and the love to orchestrate things so that we have to sit up and pay attention if, if we are willing to. We have the hardness of hearts, the ability, the unfaithfulness just to, to totally block it out, to get bitter against God or bitter against the people in our lives, whatever it may be. But, but what Hosea, what God is doing through Hosea is he wants us to wake up and, and see that, that he loves us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And the good news for us today is that the way to forgiveness and grace is, is even clearer than it was back then. That all we need to do is, is humble ourselves before the Lord. Ask the Spirit of God to help us examine our own hearts, to identify the sin, and then bring it to the cross of Jesus. And, and we can be made clean. We can be restored in intimacy because Jesus paid for our unfaithfulness because he was perfectly faithful. And so the intimacy with God, the relationship that began way back in, in perfect union in the Garden of Eden, we, it's restored through Christ. And so my encouragement to us is, is let's listen. Let's be aware for what God might be doing. We don't have to wait, by the way, for these cataclysmic things in our lives. We, we can turn back to him now. We can examine that relationship. We, we, can, we can seek to grow in it, to spend time with him, to look for those areas where we're allowing sin to take root, to put it to death, and to seek to live in his grace and mercy and love. That's God call, God's call for his people of all time, back in the time of Hosea and today. And we can do it through the, through the work of Christ. So let me pray to that end for us, and then we'll worship together. Lord God, we're so thankful that you love us enough to intervene in our lives. Lord, I want to pray for those of us here who might be experiencing something like that, something that's just stopped us in our tracks, something that's been just uh, disrupting our, our regular rhythm of life and, and we're just not sure what it is. We've been praying about it, maybe just praying for it to stop, but God, I, I pray you'd help us to see, could it be, could it be that you're allowing this for some good spiritual work to be done? And, and Lord, I pray if that's the case, that we would be soft-hearted, humble. Lord, that we, we'd be ready to receive what you have to say to us and that we would respond with faithfulness. Lord, we, we confess that we are often unfaithful. And we confess, Lord, that our intentions are sometimes good, but our follow-through is very poor. And that we can just be okay with that a lot of the time. We can be very complacent, indifferent to our sin. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that that's um, not something you're at peace with, that you've sent your spirit to convict us of sin, to lead us in holiness and righteousness. I, I pray that would be true for us. I pray also, Lord, for those here this morning who are people of faith and are just wondering, is this, is this life-giving? Is this something I'm interested in? I pray you would do a work in their heart as well to see that this, this pathway of faith is not us working at it, uh, trying to kill ourselves to, to do, be good enough. It's you've done all of that for us, Jesus. And so now we need simply to respond and turn to you. And so please, would you move in us, move in us as a church, 
Move in us so that our relationship would indeed be restored and we would enjoy intimacy with you again. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.